welcome back to Unraveling Science, the podcast where I speak to leading scientific researchers and listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientist. From immunology to astronomy, cancer biology to bioengineering, and much more. So, if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season, I'm so delighted to be sponsored by a wonderful Irish company called Biosciences Limited, who are the main thermal fisher distributors in Ireland. And I'm so grateful to them for coming on board and sponsoring this podcast. Okay, so today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor John O'Connor, Head of Teaching and Learning at the School of Biomolecular and Biomedical Science in UCD. So John's research area focuses on electrophysiology in the brain with interest in hypoxia and the interactions of immune cells with signaling in the brain. So as a previous recipient of the Conway Silver Medal, John has also won awards for excellence in teaching and has been a previous lecturer of mine in UCD. And so, yeah, I'm thrilled to sit down and chat to you today, John. So thanks again for coming on Unraveling Science. Megan, no, thank you very much for asking me on. Uh, I I hope we can get through some stories today. But yeah, absolutely delighted to be here and uh, hopefully be able to answer all your questions as honestly, uh, lying the odd time, but as honestly as possible. Okay, right. We, we'll, we'll account for a few lies in there. So we'll take it with a pinch of salt, will we? Absolutely. <laughs> um, so I suppose, John, you know, my first question really for that I ask people is kind of what did you want to be when you grew up? And, you know, what passions and, and interests did you have when you were a child, I suppose? And was science at the forefront or were there other careers? Uh, well, <laughs> it's very interesting. I work on memory and I actually probably have one of the worst memories of what I was like and what I thought and did when I was young. I I, I have very poor memory of when I was young, and I have to put that up front first. But I don't suppose I'm one of those people that had a eureka moment when I was a kid that, oh, my God, science, I have to do it. I basically loved the environment. I I was inquisitive. I drew all the dinosaurs. I did all the usual things that we all do when we're young capitals of the world. But I didn't know I was going to end up in academia when I was 10. I can be sure of that. So really, when I went to school, I knew I wasn't as good at the languages as I was at maths. I was good at maths. I was good at science, biology. So I kind of knew I was going to veer down that road. But even engineering was big in my mind when I was later teens. So I actually did have a lot of trouble filling in my CAOs. But I I, kind of got lucky that I put science down because I knew it gave me a wide choice. And if I put something a bit more specific in the CAO, I'd be caught there. So it was very close call between science and engineering for me. And it wasn't a eureka moment in school. It kind of came over the last year in school that it really was the only one I wanted to do. So it was a matter of elimination rather than a eureka moment of, I mean, I liked physics, maths, biology and chemistry. They weren't all taught well, I thought, in school. Some, it depends on your teachers as well, but I didn't particularly have anything stick out in school. So I suppose it was an elimination rather than a, a one particular moment. So I ended up putting science down and I knew there was great choice and uh, went into Trinity. So, and that for me was very unusual because nobody in my family had been to college. My, my sister had gone to college, first one ever. So we, we, weren't, we hadn't a great history of third level. So it was, it was really great for my parents for me to go to Trinity College and they were very proud of that so uh, that's kind of why I went to Trinity um, and uh, I think I made the right choice <laughs> you know? yeah no, I, de- 
Here you, here you are today, exactly. And did you did you enjoy your time in Trinity? And the degree was natural sciences, I think. Yeah, well, in, in Trinity, they they kind of do you do. It's like UCD and Galway and Cork, I think, as well, where you do mostly everything in first year, and that can be a bit troublesome if you have particular strengths or weaknesses. Luckily, I was good at maths, so that wasn't a problem um, in the biological section of, of, of the natural science one. It's called rather than two, or is it the way around? Anyway, um, I don't know. Do they still do that now in Trinity? I have seen nineteen. 81. So how many years ago was that, uh, Megan? But uh, <laughs> definitely there were some stumbling blocks in first year because you don't want to do everything and you like certain things. But I got through first year okay. Um, but it's only after second year that you really start enjoying it, I think, because you're doing the subject you really want. And I was very unusual in college because I did the lowest number of people do physiology uh, in, in sciences in, 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 in college when I was then. And I, I know that my other mates, in college and actually one of them was Luke and other people that you probably know there was a big gang of us in 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 science that year in 81 uh, that are very famous now in Ireland so (laughs) so we were a very big year I think so certainly um, I knew what I wanted to do and I wasn't going to let any of my friends what they were doing whether it was biochemistry or genetics or uh, microbiology I didn't get put off I wanted physiology I definitely knew I wanted to work with the workings of the body and in particular the brain so so I was very adamant I was going to do it even though people say, what are you doing that for? So um, I absolutely loved it and uh, came top of the class, in fact, uh, that year. So I was delighted um, and went on from there. Um, I suppose in a way, neuroscience, I kind of really got into that in my third year, fourth year in college. I knew that that was the speciality I would like to do when I finished. But I hadn't decided um, when I was doing my degree that I wanted to do a higher degree at all. In fact, if I was to give advice to students, I would say leave all your options open because when I got the fourth year, I had no idea I was going to do a PhD at that stage. So I thought maybe I would go into pharma or industry. In fact, I didn't know. So what happened was very, I suppose, bit lucky because I was working for my Fortier project and in fact many students who work with their Fortier project they often get into something else because of their supervisor at that stage so my supervisor actually was Michael Rowan uh, hi Mike uh, down in Trinity I was his first PhD student and it was really true Mike offered me a a position and I kind of had made my mind up over the summer whether I would take it or not. So don't rush into it, people, when you graduate. Think about it carefully because it's a big commitment to do a PhD. So I took my time and I, over the summer I worked with Mike on another project. And then he said, what do you think? And I took the PhD at the end of the summer. But it was that or I'd go on the lighthouses, um, <laughs> funnily enough. No, I, I, that's actually true because uh, during college, I, I used to fly out to the lighthouses and work uh, in the summer. My father was a lighthouse keeper and uh, there was plenty of work in the summer. I used to get sick more in the summer than in the winter for some reason. And where, you know, where were the lighthouses? Oh, yeah, I was on the Kish a couple of times. I was on Rockabill, Ballycotton, Bull Rock down in, uh, off, off near Skelligs. So I did quite a, quite a lot of lighthouses when I was a student. Um, very jealous uh, friends of mine in college because in the early 80s, there were no jobs in Ireland. Um, summer jobs were very difficult. You couldn't even get a McDonald's job. No offence <laughs> to McDonald's. But um, building sites were limited. Everything, everybody went abroad and everyone went to the States. So there was I flying out. Even two trips to a lighthouse, I was set up for the whole year with money. So because you had a month on or a month off, you go out with 10p in your pocket and you come back four weeks later with 10p in your pocket. So uh, (laughs) um, you didn't spend any money or anything. So you didn't drink either. So that was good. But that 
gave me money as I went through college. And um, obviously, I had seen what it was like to work in a bar and I'd done all the other things. But uh, that was certainly a, uh, an experience that nobody else had in the whole university except me. Huge, only principal keeper's sons could do it. They ah. only took on the sons of the principal keepers who, who had put their name down that they would be prepared to be called up at short notice to fly out to the lighthouse. Yeah. Oh, and what about the daughters of the principal keepers? Uh, no, there was no women on lighthouses ever. Um, and that was just the way it was. It just wasn't practical. You, you couldn't um, put the money in to segregate or to build the, what you would need. So it was accepted that until automation occurred in the late 90, 80s and early 90s, it was accepted that it would be men only. So the women often lived way back in the 1930s 40s they families lived at the lighthouse and we lived at them for many years when i was a kid on the shore but if if it was an offshore lighthouse it was only the men went out to that three three guys on uh, and three guys off is how it worked i mean i'm one of the last there because my photo would have been the last out of the bailey lighthouse the last automated lighthouse so i guess i would be the last generation who would have experience of actually working on the lighthouses, my age group. So I think when I'm gone, they're all gone. There are many still alive who of my father's age, but uh, once my generation goes, I think there won't be any evidence of anybody who's actually lived and worked on the lighthouses. It's yeah. mad. It's a phenomenal, phenomenal experience, yeah. Oh, like, what, so what did you have to do? What was your well, job? The Kish was, a, you know, the Kish just off the Dublin Bay there. You'd land on the top, terrifying for an 18, 19 year old. And uh, this is meant to be a science podcast. Sorry about this, folks. But <laughs> I'm sure people are interested because um, it, is, it is unusual to hear from the temporary keepers. We were the temporary keepers because we weren't employed fully by the light of the commissioners of Irish Lights. But you'd land on the lighthouse and you'd have four weeks. And you'd be given a, basically a four-hour shift. There was three four-hour shifts a day. So three guys, you'd either do 10 to 2, 2 to 6, or 6 to 10, twice a day. So if you were coming out like me, they gave you this stinker shift. So you got the 2 to 6, which meant you had to get up at 2 in the morning until 6 in the morning. And then you did the 2 in the afternoon until 6 in the afternoon. So you got that for a week, and then you changed to the next one. So it did rotate. But during your watch, you kept weather. You sent in weather reports to Met Aaron. You kept the lookout. You had the VHS. You shipping. You'd be Channel 16. You, you know, there were many yacht that you had to communicate with or boat. But nowadays, it's all computer and uh, satellites, so there's no major issue. But then they did rely a little bit on communication through the lighthouses the odd time. Um, so my father got a, an award for saving someone down a cliff in the Bailey once. So th they did help people regularly uh, and that, but uh, it's all automated now. Uh, mm. There's an attendant that actually goes to the lighthouses, or in some cases they live there. So there is one guy usually in charge of keeping an eye on it. But that's usually to stop people trespassing and stealing, <laughs> which believe. Yeah. <laughs> because they'd strip uh, a, a lighthouse if they could now, you know. So you have to be careful um, of that as well. But it's all changed. Uh, those were the days. Um, but college got in the way and I had to give that up. And I went on and started the PhD and uh, had to stop the, the lighthouse uh, <laughs> duties. But uh, they were wonderful um, uh, part of my life, I have to say. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's what you were saying there that you'd done your fourth year project and with uh, your then your who who would come on go on to be your supervisor. I think that's really important as well because you kind of get a sense of what working in that research area would be like. You get a sense of the supervisor, you get a sense of, you know, a lab, and then the supervisor also gets a sense of you because it's a big commitment, you know, to start a PhD. Absolutely. And, and even though it wasn't really a, a close project, I was doing a slightly different project as an undergrad to what was being offered. But you're absolutely right. 
you could tell that Mike and, and Roger Anwell was the other person who worked with Mike, rest his soul, he's, he's, he's died there now recently, but they knew from me that I was able, that I would be able for the project. And the project that they had in mind was quite a difficult one. It's a technically difficult one. It was, it was Vivo recording in, in animals. And I, I know your listeners out there will, will probably understand that animal refers, but these are very difficult experiments to perform. So they didn't want to offer it to anyone unless they were sure that the person was able for the project and I think they knew from the project I'd done in the undergrad days that I would be and it turned out I did very well in the project so so it, it just shows you do have to suss out the student as well mm. as the student sussing out the supervisor I think it goes both ways you know yeah no definitely and and you know when you were saying to your parents you were going to take on this PhD and your family were they like oh there's no money in that you know get out or were they were they happy you know that's a really good question because I, I went through college on a grant my parents wouldn't have had a lot of money and um, when I said I was going to do a PhD and I can tell you now I remember distinctly 1985 and it was three thousand pounds a year from the HRB because it was a HRB scholarship like you, do, you get now and it was three thousand pounds I remember it well and that was enough and, and that was actually enough to live on but I stayed at home for a lot of my PhD most students like to live out and and, and that's something that they, they should do but I made a decision I bought a motorbike and it was either stay at home and have a motorbike or move out <laughs> so you, you have to sort of make your decisions um, but it was enough money and my parents didn't mind I think they were delighted to see that I was continuing my father was a real advocate of education there was uh, six of us and I had a brother as well before that there was uh, seven or eight of us in the family so he was a really big into education and if you got your education you had a better chance of success in life and I always he, he did ingrain that in all his kids so really I don't think my parents minded looking after I never really took much from them so because mm -hmm. I had enough money and I worked in the summer and I did what I needed to but the PhD was it was tough going you didn't have a lot of money um, but you had enough to to get it and if you're committed and you really thought it was for you then it's worth doing it's absolutely worth doing. Um, but the money didn't go up that quick afterwards, I have to say. For those who are doing PhDs, postdoctoral work isn't great at the beginning. And uh, I, I, don't wanna, I don't know if you want to go down that road, but uh, it, it takes a while to get going. And you know, I see you smiling there, yeah. but postdoctoral work can be challenging after the PhD as well, financially. So uh, yeah. I, I, would I would add that. I think we'd all be depressed if we were talking about that. <laughs> I don't know. I think you have to love what you do. I, yeah. I do. I do think so. I mean, there's enough money, but you don't do it for the money, certainly, certainly early in your career, you don't. You do it for the love of the area. Yeah, I can completely agree with that. And so I suppose your area, your PhD research, that was neuroscience, am I right in that? Yeah, I actually looked at antidepressants. I'm, an ex I'm a world expert on why antidepressants take two weeks to kick in. <laughs> so what I did was I used an animal model to, to look at some novel antidepressants at the time. One of them was called Busperone and tricyclics, people will have come across those like imipramine. So we tested these and we tried to look at receptors and how they might change during two weeks because we know in humans, it, it takes a while for them to kick in. Why can't you just give a bigger dose and it has an effect rather than giving a lower dose over two weeks. And it doesn't quite work that way pharmacologically. There are receptor changes and there are other things happening. And we did an electrophysiological study of how neurons are changing in their firing activity and how the synapses, that's the connections between the, the neurons, are changing during the treatment with two weeks of, of these compounds. And we came to some conclusions, but unfortunately we didn't answer all the questions. Like most scientists, Megan, we didn't get all the answers. But, but we published 
published four or five papers out of my PhD. So, so we, I think we were very happy with that at the end. God, that's, I mean, I feel like, you know, there's a lot of pressure to, you know, when you finish your PhD and you've just, you know, completed this huge manuscript, but then everyone's like, but where, where are you publishing it? And you're like, well, I've just done this one huge well, thing. Well, there's more pressure now than ever to actually mm. publish during your PhD. And, and I think one of the things I would say as having examined students many times, external examiner, internal examiner, it does help to pass your PhD if they see that you're publishing or that it's of publishable quality. So I would stress to those doing a PhD out there, do try to get a publication at least started or at least evidence because the examiner will really be positive about that when they're examining you in your PhD. I don't know if, if that was the case for you, but certainly the, the, all the ones I've examined, I'm always more positive when I see that they're attempting to publish or have published. Yeah, well, one of my chapters was published and I just kind of, it was, it was a lot easier to <laughs> yeah, yeah. write it up then because I had it all done, you know, that kind of way. That, so that was, that was a help. But um, when I did my PhD, I suppose at the end of the PhD, that's really often when you have to deep think what you want to do with your career. Mm-hmm. Because after a PhD, I mean, the amount of students I put through, many of them have gone out of research afterwards. And really, that's the critical time, I think, after your PhD. You've survived four years of little money, hardship. The ups and the downs are horrendous at times but the ups are pretty good too when something works or something is published or something good happens but the downs are tough but I think at the end of a PhD if you make that decision to stay in research then you're hard you're hard skinned and you'll probably be okay because a lot don't go on to do postdoctoral research and I think if you want to like me I kind of knew at the end of my PhD not just that I like research but maybe I would like a university position eventually and I kind of knew that Ireland doesn't have any research only institutes so if you want to work you know in research and teaching it's going to have to be a university and I kind of was good that way. I knew what I wanted to do. So I knew I'd have to do a few postdoctoral uh, positions, but I also knew they'd have to be producing. They'd have to be good because when you went to apply for those positions, they really do look at you and compare you against other people, how many papers you've published and grants and so on. So I think if anyone's finishing their PhD or doing your PhD, you do have to put in your, your, you know, your, your shoulder to the wheel on a couple of good postdocs because otherwise you're competing with people who really are solid. So I decided at the end of my PhD, I would go abroad to do a postdoc. But I was very lucky, Megan, because the techniques in the 80s that I had, electrophysiology, for those who are listening in, basically you're recording electrical signals from neurons in uh, animal models, either in isolated tissue or actually in whole tissue. And I had all these techniques and and they were really wanted then because the pharmaceutical industry were looking, first of all, to get these people to test drugs on uh, all the time. Uh, You can't just put drugs on cultured cells and say it works and bring it to human trials. You've got to test it in in, in real animals and you've got to show that uh, it's not dangerous. So we were sought after, the electrophysiologists in vivo people were, were employable. And I remember being offered a job in the Albert Einstein in the US, in Cardiff, London so I had I actually had a pick and I had a Marie Curie would you believe um, grant with Mike to to do six months or a year in Europe and I had to turn that down which is unheard of a Marie Curie you know a yeah. training you know the, the, the big grant because I was offered a three-year position at the same time in London 
And I ended up taking the London job, actually, um, because it was slightly challenging. It was a slightly different technique. It was electrochemistry rather than electrophysiology. So I was measuring neurotransmitters in the brain with carbon fiber electrodes rather than using glass electrodes to look just at electrical signals in the cells. So I learned a huge amount. I published something like six papers, actually, in London in that two and a half, three years. And then, would you believe it, good old Mike and uh, he offered me a postdoc back in Dublin after the three years over there because he got a lovely grant with the Mercer Institute. I don't know if you know it up in James's and they do a lot of Alzheimer's research with patients and they do basic research and he got a big grant there and I came back to do some work looking at not Alzheimer's disease per se but looking at how neurons respond with certain drugs we used in memory mechanisms in the brain and uh, would you believe it that worked out really well for me and I think that was the postdoc that got me the lecture because I got a nature paper out of that. And uh, I think if a postdoc gets a nature paper or big papers, they're in a really good position at that stage then to apply for academic positions. And that's how competitive it is now, Mm -hmm. Megan. Um, And I know from interviewing people now, it's just as bad now, if not worse. So so really the postdoctoral world is very competitive. Um, And I'm not trying to be negative. It's a wonderful career and you get an awful buzz out of it if you get your papers accepted and something works. But when it comes to the competition for applying for those academic positions, we all know that you get multiple, you know, applicants and it's, it's really hard on everyone. And uh, the talent that's out there is phenomenal at the moment. And um, it's just with this pandemic and all, there's going to be a lot of people looking to move around soon. And uh, we'll wait and see what happens because uh, it's difficult and the universities are all broke. I so uh, we'll have to see what happens. Um, but my career sort of fell ahead of me all the time and I did always look six months to a year as we all do to see what I wanted and if you don't keep your eye on the horizon for six months to a year you could stall and and once I got the academic position I suppose it was a three-year um, again, you don't even walk into permanent jobs very regularly now. Mm. But what, once you get the three year, it gives you a stranglehold to, to try and get into that mm. department. But you have to be careful of one thing as regards going from research into an academic position. Your research can stall if you're not careful. So they could hammer you with some teaching admin. And next thing you know, your three years is up and you're applying against people coming in who have just done research. Yeah. And they're going to get the permanent job then. So if you're moving, my advice would be try to move to a permanent job from your postdoc if you can. Because if you take the temporary positions, you could be getting into a catch-22 um, with the teaching and admin uh, and, and, and fail to compete then with the research-only applicants for those lectureships and and I think a lot of postdocs need to be aware of that that you have to balance what you want you know Um, but I was very lucky because I applied for the permanent in UCD then and uh, they were paying more than Trinity I don't mind saying that Uh, (laughs) and and I got that position so I was lucky and my research went fairly well but you, you know if your research doesn't keep going in these positions you can stall and and I'm sure there are many people in Ireland who aren't stellar and they struggle then to bring the grants in uh, later in their career. So it's a very difficult situation in Ireland. They're funding the big groups, they're funding the centres and that's great because they produce a lot and they do well, but they're not funding enough, they're not pumping enough money into the individual researchers in Ireland at the moment and and there's 70-80% of staff are in that category. And if the SFI don't get their act together and do more of the Frontiers type programmes, 
I think the 80% of staff in university who want to do research aren't getting funded. Now, is that a good system to have 20% funded with the big, 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 big grants? They produce and they do well, and, and there's no doubt about that. But I think you're leaving behind too many people at the moment in Ireland with, with so little funding for the smaller groups. And they might only want one PhD student at a time for their careers, but yet they're producing papers every year. So I don't know, I think there is a kickback from some of the bigger researchers in Ireland that they want this as well, that they want to see SFI and mm -hmm. HRB and all the, the agencies in Ireland kicking money more into individual um, projects. So we'll, we'll see what happens. But um, I think that's a real problem for the future in Ireland with the universities. A lot of staff not being funded at the moment and uh, it's going to come back to haunt us, I think, badly. Yeah, no, and I do think, you know, from kind of talking to people throughout this podcast and people who are in academic positions, it seems to be quite a balancing act and something has to give between your teaching and your and your research and you know you're trying to kind of um give an, the equal amount of time to both but as you said there's admin involved with teaching there's you know a lot of other aspects to Absolutely. it well i, I think you, you, you do make some decisions though yourself i mean it's not that it's all forced on you i mean take me for example i mean certainly the research was going well it hasn't been going as well recently because the funding isn't there i still have couple of PhD students and they're doing great and, and, and during this pandemic it's wonderful to see them working so well but I have taken on more administrative roles in my college and and someone has to do it Megan you know so if you look at any of the universities in Ireland Trinity, Manus, Cork, Galway, UCD someone's got to take the slack of, of who does all the admin so if some people don't pick it up then it's going to be in a bad way. The college isn't going to run well. So you do find people drift into more and more admin or teaching duties. Like I'm head of teaching and learning in my school, which, which I enjoy, but it takes up an awful lot of time. So yes, it does pull me away probably from writing massive grants, from applying for certain types of grants, and I'm left with less. So I think in my, at my age, that's okay. You can make those decisions. And it could be irreversible, may not. You could get lucky and have some stellar ideas and get back into it and pull away from the administration. Or you could get caught staying in the administrative roles and your research sliding while you get into your 50s and 60s. So a lot of staff that happens to, but at least they're covering the jobs that the researchers don't have to do then and they can get mm -hmm. on with their job. So I, I think as long as everybody is working hard and filling their time, then the college is, is functioning and oiled. But if no one does those administrative jobs, you know, the university has to force it then, has to force someone to do it. So if there's volunteers, that's great. It's the people who don't volunteer for anything that I worry about. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, and I suppose that kind of brings me nicely I suppose, into, you know, your research area and maybe talk to me a bit about that um, and the findings that you've, your group have shown in the last few years. Yeah, um, so it started off early on in UCD, I suppose. I mean, I was influenced by people like Luke O'Neill, who, who was a friend of mine. I went to college with Luke, and he worked in the immune system. So when I was looking at memory, I always worked on one particular structure in the brain. That was called the hippocampus. It's a tiny little structure in the human brain, but it's incredibly important. If I took out the hippocampus on both sides of your brain, you would not remember a thing from that point on. You would remember probably what you were as a kid and what you did previous years ago, but you will not remember one thing that comes up after that point. So there have been a couple of cases of people who've had that lesions or they, they, they've lost their hippocampus suddenly uh, through uh, an injury, and they actually can't remember a thing 30 seconds later. 
So the hippocampus is the structure that really is involved in enabling you to lay down memories in the brain. So every so if you were to turn your head away there, you'd remember my face. So if your hippocampus wasn't working and I appeared on the screen and you turned away, you wouldn't remember me at all. Not not a bit. So in Alzheimer's disease, it's in fact the hippocampus that gets probably uh, the cells in the hippocampus start dying. One of the first places to die in the brain is the hippocampus. And that's why you start forgetting things. You don't forget what you did years ago, but you start forgetting everything you need to remember now. And that's why the hippocampus is known to, to, to die away first in the brain in, 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 in the Alzheimer's. So it's a very important structure for laying down memories. You need to send electrical signals through the hippocampus if you're to remember anything. So if you see something, your eyes, you smell something, you touch something, all of the neurons that are electrically activated in your brain have to activate through the hippocampus and then send signals to other parts of the brain where you will store the memories, okay? Some memories are stored in the hippocampus, some in other parts of the brain. So I've been working on that for many, many years. But one of the things we work on is not just how memory works, how these neurons work together and produce these memories, but also things like how the immune system interferes with memories. So for example, when you're sick, you have a fever, you release many things called cytokines, um, and you're very well aware it is. These cause you to have fevers and so on. They actually impair memory. So you don't remember as well when you're sick. So mm. if you're sick in bed, don't study. You won't, your study will be less efficient. So we were looking at how that works with a model in the hippocampus. We have a model in the hippocampus whereby we stimulate the hippocampus for a burst of activity and we notice that the synapses get stronger. So what we do is we put some of these compounds in during uh, sickness, uh, like interleukins, uh, tumor necrosis factor, and they actually inhibit the ability of these synapses to strengthen when you give this burst of activity. So that would be a good way to say that they're blocking memory formation in the brain. And we spent a lot of time doing that. So I published a lot of papers back in the 80s and 90s about that. And, and we showed the involvement of certain kinases and certain proteins in this mechanism. Uh, and we went on with that. So in time, though, I've kind of moved on a little bit in the last five, 10 years to oxygen and the immune system. So what we're looking at now is low oxygen in the brain and how it's very detrimental to neurons, to cells in the brain, and they die. So for example, um, if you take away oxygen from neurons, you've got about 10 to 20 minutes before they start dying. Uh, one of the quickest other cells in your body may survive for hours and days without oxygen, um, certain smooth muscle cells and so on. So what we've actually started up this year, believe it or not, is a stroke model. So we're going to do a stroke model in animals whereby we're going to stop the flow of blood to a certain region of the brain and we're going to have a look at that tissue and then we're going to have a look at what effect it had on the hippocampus. So we're going to see how does a stroke in a, in a model of an animal affect memory in the hippocampus. Now remember strokes tend to be particular vessels in the brain that are affected. So particular areas of the brain that are supplied by that blood vessel will be the main affected areas. But in fact, faraway areas in the brain are often affected as well from signaling that goes on, immune signaling, glial cells. There's a lot of activity going on in tissue far away. And we want to see what's happening to the hippocampus when, for example, we might block blood in the cerebral arteries, which would be more cortical or striatal effects, but yet the hippocampus probably is going to have some effects that uh, we're going to look at. And we're also going to have a look at isolated tissue and how it responds to uh, hypoxia. In other words, if you have a TIA, a small stroke, cells seem to 
be shocked, but they're ready for a bigger one and they're more prepared. It's called preconditioning. Okay. So we're also interested in that. And we're going to do that to tissue and see what mechanisms might be involved in making these neurons become better at adapting to a shock of oxygen lowering or glucose lowering. And we're going to have a look at the mechanisms of that. So these two students at the moment are, are looking at that and it's causing a lot of issues, this pandemic, getting it up and running. Um, so we're, we're hoping to get that started soon. But I have to say research, I'm sure all around the world is really suffering at the moment because laboratories are really struggling to go up to full uh, throttle. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm sure you yourself know that, but uh, especially if you're working in uh, models with animals, now, it's very difficult at the moment. And I have to say we have been slowed down dramatically. Um, and I hope people doing PhDs are given a little bit of more time because it's going to be more difficult for them to finish in three to four years now, I'd say, particularly those who are, say, three years in. Yeah. It's going to be very, if you're starting, it's not so bad. You might catch up. But I think the pandemic and their funding is only for a set period of time. So this is another issue that's coming uh, our way, I think. Who's going to pay them when their grants run out and they still have another year to go? So um, luckily, my two students are early and I'm hoping we might be able to catch up depending on how many lockdowns we have but um, we'll see how it goes um, certainly uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what data comes out of this model but uh, we, we hope publishing is the key um, so um, we'll see what happens but fingers crossed on the pandemic anyway um, yeah 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 like I, I think just the whole area of uh, obviously I work on immune cells and our lab has done a lot of work on hypoxia as well so it's very interesting to think about hypoxia in a different setting, I suppose, and in, and in the brain. So how do you envisage studying this might help somebody who may be at risk of, of getting a stroke? Yeah, yeah, um, that's exactly what we're interested in. There are some compounds out there that are in clinical trials at the moment for um, certain um, anemic conditions and inflammatory bowel conditions. And one of them is a, a compound, an it's an enzyme that blocks, um, it's a prolhydroxylase inhibitor, that's a big word. But what it does is it inhibits the activation of HIF, which is a signal in hypoxia. So it simulates a hypoxia. So if it's inhibiting, therefore that means it's simulating the hypoxia. And those compounds are taught maybe to be useful because they may pre-prepare tissue for hypoxia if you treat them with this compound. So we think that there's, there's evidence now that if you treat animals with this, with this inhibitor, it's called a PhD inhibitor, let's just call it that, mm. that the cells are now being more preconditioned to a hypoxic event so that you're simulating the activity of hypoxia by giving these drugs because you're allowing HIF activation, but the hypoxic event is doing similar things and suddenly now the cells are more protected. So there's evidence in animals that when you give this compound, you're protecting the cells for a hypoxic event a few hours later, a few days later. So we're going to give some of these compounds to animals before a stroke. And we're going to see how many cells die or how many are, are, are saved. And we're going to look at the hippocampus and see if memory is impaired or saved. And we're going to try and look at a number of these compounds because all of the remedies, all of the therapies for stroke at the moment, there's only one, and it's from 20, 30 years ago, the, the clotting uh, agent. So there's no compounds even coming out at the moment that are there to give the stroke victims that might protect cells uh, in a stroke. Now, you, you asked about it, what's the point of having these if you give it to a person after they've had the stroke? Well, we're thinking that maybe if people can be identified as at risk 
you mm. could then pre-treat them with some of these compounds so that if they do have a stroke, the compounds already in the system. I think it's something like seven or eight hours. The average, I, I may be wrong, the neurologist will, will correct me, but stroke victims don't get to hospital for many, many hours after the stroke usually. And much of the brain region supplied by the, um, the blood has, been, ha, has died uh, and the penumbra, which is the region around it, is dying. But if you could get the drug in early after the stroke or even before the stroke happens, then that's the ideal what pharmaceutical companies are looking at. This is just one compound that we're going to look at. But yeah, so we're trying to see, is this compound which simulates a hypoxic event, could it pre-prepare the tissue for when the stroke comes to, to save some of the tissue itself. Uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get that data during the time of, the, of this work. But it's one of the few compounds that has come up to be able to do some protection of neurons in the brain that might work. But there's very few areas of research that have a compound in mind for stroke research. It's one of the poor areas, I'm afraid, at the moment. There's very little coming out at the moment on it. It, it's it's interesting to think of you know that you were saying that hypoxia in if you put neurons in hypoxia they will die you know quite they, they don't last very long but pre-treating them how long would you pre-treat them for before you'd be worried that they would die do you get what i'm saying yeah yeah absolutely i mean they're a little bit more resilient than you might think you probably would get away with five ten fifteen minutes type treatments but if it's pure if it's pure taking away all oxygen then that's a very serious thing you might for example lower the oxygen to half of what you might get in the brain or whatever i mean people forget about the the physics the mathematics in in the air there's 20% oxygen, we call it percent out of the air. In the blood, then that goes down further, and then the brain is slightly less. So the brain is getting nowhere near the 20% that we have in, in, in the atmosphere. So you have to be careful when you talk about hypoxia. Hypoxia really is a lowering of oxygen that's low for that particular tissue, okay? Mm -hmm. So brain cells can take a little bit lower than you might think, but not for too long. So you're talking minutes, I guess, treating, um, uh, but these drugs, aren't a worry in saying they simulate hypoxia. They simulate hypoxia in what proteins they activate. They're not simulating hypoxia by taking away the oxygen. Mm. They're simulating what the hypoxia causes to happen in the body. So when hypoxia occurs in the body, proteins are activated. For example, you've got EPO, you, you, you know, you've got revascularization over days. These are the things that happen when you simulate hypoxia, not the actually detriment to the cells of taking the oxygen away. So, so you can give these treatments and not in any way reduce the oxygen to the cells, but you're activating the processes that hypoxia would activate if it was uh, 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 there, like if you go up to Mount Everest, you're activating more blood, uh, oxygen-carrying blood cells, EPO, and so on. It's not that you're taking away the oxygen; you're causing the activation of new processes in the body. Yeah. Okay. It's really a chemical simulant rather than taking oxygen away. Yeah, yeah. And the other kind of question, which I don't know uh, if I'm on the right track with this, but if you are simulating or you know you're putting in this phd inhibitor which is going to activate hif and and you know all these kind of uh, hypoxic signaling pathways that might then have a knock-on effect on pro-inflammatory mediators such as tnf and and il1 so does that then have a negative impact 
Um, Absolutely. And, and luckily, I have a little bit of experience in measuring IL-1 and TNF. So what we're going to do is we're going to measure those compounds in these animals as well when we give them the, the simulants. So we will hope to use a concentration, one or two different types of concentrations, and maybe we'll be able to do it in a way that doesn't activate them too much. Because we do know that if we overactivate IL-1 or TNF, it's probably not a good thing. Mm-hmm. And it will be important to use these compounds in a way that are, is not pro-inflammatory. Um, so we're hoping, I mean, it may be that you could give these compounds and if they are pro-inflammatory slightly, you could add an anti-inflammatory agent with these compounds, for example, and, and hope that that then would be further help to the, to the victim. So, so, so really, um, we have to measure these levels as well. You're absolutely right. And, and, and there is that problem, but no one's done this. So, um, you know, let's see how we get on. And uh, there are some very good anti-inflammatory agents. So I would be very hopeful that even if they raise the level slightly, we might be able to counterbalance that by putting the anti-inflammatory agents in. But maybe get a concentration that doesn't activate them in the first place would would be very important there. Yeah, again, with anything in science, it's a fine balance. So you kind of have to, you know, make sure. Once you do one thing, something else pops up. Absolutely. (laughs) And I know that you also work on, you you get uh, samples from the coom, I think I'm right in that. Yeah, this this is where you're scrabbling, uh, you know, for funding. uh, uh, When you're not bringing in the huge grants, sometimes you have to go after projects that are going to bring in some money and some students. So I've taken on a few MD students in my time um, who, who, who do MDs and not PhDs. Although I think, most students are now trying to do PhDs but what we got we got a I have very good colleagues in the Coombs Women Hospital and we used to actually bring in some smooth muscle tissue myometrium from patients with full ethical consent and we would measure we would look at the contractions of a tiny piece that was going to be uh, not used anyway and we put it in a water bath and we'd look at the contraction of the smooth muscle and we looked at a number of projects on that and we were always very interested in um, eclampsia and we were interested in other inflammatory conditions in women in pregnancy so we were able to publish a few papers on opioids as well we did a few projects on that so I've covered a few areas but it was a fantastic setup where we had myometrial human tissue contracting in a bad and in fact it's very interesting you can put it in the fridge overnight a little piece of myometrium and then if you put it in the water bath the next day and let it heat up to 37 degrees over half an hour it starts contracting again so it keeps alive just in solution and this is what i was talking to you about oxygen and hypoxia on certain tissues it's one of the most robust i've come across so we were able to keep it overnight and then it would contract every i think if, I, if memory serves me right it contracts in the water bath about once every five or six minutes so it's quite slow contractions and it, you can have it in the bath for 12 hours you, you, you can work with it um, it's very resilient tissue um, and we were able to look at a few things that were of interest in the project so that was one of the you know sometimes you can get a project going that's not that related to your main area of research and I do like putting my hands in a few other things when I'm working in UCD and, and certainly that that was a very uh, interest obviously with the pandemic and other issues where ethics are difficult now and so we haven't been doing a lot of that research recently um, I think we probably have to go for it in a big way if we wanted to do more of it and apply for a very big project with a big ethics approval but certainly it was very astute we used to let the fourth year students um, do projects with that with us as well and they, 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 they enjoyed that um, so it's amazing what you can end up doing as a fourth year undergraduate student 
<laughs> yeah. yeah. And can you, can you, you could see them actually like contract in. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it's visibly, uh, uh, it's visible practically, but I mean, it's a very small piece of tissue. Um, mm. But the contractions are 10, 15 grams tension in a couple of millimeters piece of tissue. So it's phenomenally um, strong. Um, well, it's what propels the baby out, basically. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so uh, very interesting to work with. And, and, and I'd like to thank the Coombe Hospital and, and, and the staff there who helped me and some very good friends of mine there. So, so hopefully, we, we published a few, but it's difficult work because you do have to get full consent of the women and really, it's difficult. Uh, human work is always difficult. Anybody will tell you banking tissue and so on is always very difficult. But it was wonderful to be able to work a little bit and to produce some data on, on some of the ways it works. But it's one of the most resilient tissues I've ever come across in the body. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and so, you know, that's interesting because you have worked with the human samples and the patient samples, but then also animal models. So what yeah. is the model that you use for stroke? Or what animal okay, is it? So what, I mean, you can't do this in a dish. Um, you can't get cultured neuronal cells in a dish and, and, and run a scalpel across them. <laughs> it, it just won't work. So you do have to use, uh, unfortunately, a real animal. But I mean, we do this in a minimal amount. So basically, um, we use a rat model and we literally, we haven't been doing this yet. We're setting it up. We're going to cauterize the middle cerebral artery, it's called. And this would be one of the most common arteries that probably fails in a human as well in stroke. Stroke, actually, there are many arteries that can fail, but that would be one of the main ones that happens. And most neurologists would be able to tell nearly by looking at the patient and what's failed and what part of the side of the face, tongue, movement, they could nearly tell which artery has failed uh, by, by doing tests on a human. They're very good at that. So we would try to simulate the main one, which would be the middle cerebral artery. We would cauterize it where that is supplying, which is certain areas of the cortex of the animal, no blood will go and those cells will start dying from within minutes of doing that. We will then behaviorally analyze the animal and see what happens. And usually they lose movement on one side. And then we'll be able to research the hippocampus, the cortex, and we'll be able to see uh, have our drugs helped We'll be injecting those before we do this. We will see what happens um, with inflammatory mediators. We will probably look at the model we use for memory in the hippocampus, and we will see has that been manipulated or modulated or blocked in any way. How we do that is, and it's the main, the main part of my research, is we take a piece of tissue from the hippocampus and we stimulate some axons. These are the little tracks that go down and synapse with the next neuron. So we stimulate one neuron and we record from the next neuron and we're able to see what happens across the synapse. So we talk, one neuron talks to the other and we get a certain signal. And with that, when we stimulate and then we get the signal in the second neuron, we're able to measure that over hours. And then we put in drugs to see has that signal changed in any way. And then we use our model from memory. And how the model for memory works that we use, and it's a most famous model for memory in the world, you stimulate the first neuron and you look at the second. Then you give a burst of activity to the first neuron and you look at the signal in the second. And then you go back and look at the normal signal and it's bigger. So by giving a split second burst of activity to the first neuron, you're able to strengthen the synapse, make it bigger 
for, for hours and hours afterwards. So one split second stimulation makes the synapse stronger for hours and hours and hours. And this is called long-term potentiation. And that's really the core of all of my research. And that is the model for memory that everybody uses around the world now. So it means that if you see something, there's a burst of activity, you see someone's face, you smell something, that burst of activity goes through the hippocampus. There's a coding, it's a certain number of signal, electrical signals. They then code and fire another load of neurons in another area of the brain, and that coding is laid down as a memory. Mm. So you then, if you fire that particular pattern again, you remember the face, you remember the smell. So all memories we think are encoded electrically in the brain. So it's easy for me to explain that there's certain firing patterns but then you're gonna to have to talk to the behavioral psychologist, what is a face? What is green? What is yeah. a tone? Like, it's very hard to move from the electrical activity coding of signals to actually what you think and what you see. And that's for the behavioral psychologist to talk to you about. We are the electrophysiologists who look at the coding and the firing patterns of the neurons, how many electrical signals they put out to each other, how many are required to fire again to bring back a signal, and so on. So we know that the hippocampus is very much involved in coding those electrical signals which move through the synapses in the hippocampus. And they're the signals I look at, and we look at what way drugs manipulate that pattern of activity in the hippocampus. It's, you know, they all, everyone says, you know, like the brain is like the computer of the body and stuff, but even the words you're using, they're coding and stuff. It is very... Well, absolutely. I mean, if you think about the engineers and the computer scientists, there's a huge area of research now where they're collaborating with the biologists and, and, the, and the electrophysiologists. So, for example, you could set up a computer to simulate, there's a thing called the Human Brain Project going on, 1 billion euros in Europe, and there's another one in the States, $1 billion, where they're trying to set up every bit of research in neuroscience together and put it together into a computer. So how there's some beautiful um, uh, pictures on the internet if you go in and look at the Blue Brain Project, it's called. And at the moment, they're simulating a tiny piece of the motor cortex in the brain. That's where they're starting. And they've got thousands of neurons in a computer, and they're firing in one of them. They're saying, here's an input to one. What comes out at the other end? And they're looking to see what comes out the other end. They don't know, so they're putting in so many connections in the computer, a computer model, that they're trying to create a brain, a mini brain instead. So my feeling is that in many years time, we will be creating computers that will learn. So I mean, properly learn. Mm. You put a signal in, a, 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 say an image or a sound, and it will store it. And then it will be able to replay that sound itself when it wants and so on, because it will encode the signals. So when you say we're a bit like computers, we are. Absolutely. Mm. There's no doubt about it. We may not be one zero, one zero digital, but we're certainly not far off it. And um, I, I really do think that the brain, the human brain project, you, you, people need to look at what they're doing on the Internet. It's fantastic. Some of the stuff that's coming out of that, particularly the modeling, um, the modeling data is phenomenal. Um, it's terrifying in some ways. I mean, the ethics in the next 100 years as to whether we create a mind and a computer, is that to be treated the same as us? Mm. It'll be interesting to see. Um, but I do think we will definitely have com supercomputers in the future, which will be able to take information in and store and learn and put different information out. Absolutely. To a, I mean, they're sort of doing that now, but 
I think power is huge, Megan. Um, I mean, the human brain has 80 billion, I think, uh, neurons and synapses, maybe thousands of synapses in each one. So if you think about the configurations involved in the human brain, there isn't really any sort of supercomputer that could do all of that at the moment. So we actually need to develop computing further to be even able to do this. So uh, I think we are. I mean, the, I mean, look at the difference in where the storage capacity of a computer was 10 years ago to now. It's phenomenal. Uh, and the computing power of a computer is phenomenal compared to a year or two ago. Every time I buy a new computer, it's amazing the <laughs> difference. But there will come a limit, but there isn't a capacity yet, even at that level of nowadays, to simulate a human brain because of the number of connections in the human brain. As soon as they can, then all bets are off as to what will happen, I can tell you. Yeah, it's interesting to think about, but also the whole area of neuroscience, I think is fascinating. And as I'd said kind of earlier, I had taken a lot of lectures from you in, when I did biomedical science in UCD. And, you know, I particularly remembered kind of your lecturing style is, it's, I suppose it's funny, it's engaging. It's, you know, and, and you know, do you, do you enjoy you. teaching? <laughs> but do you enjoy that? It, it, it seems to kind of a student sitting in a lecture hall that you do enjoy it, you know? Well, you know, it's very interesting because when I came into UCD um, from a postdoctoral position in Trinity, I had not really taught big classes a lot. I had taught a few classes. You, t- you tend to be given a few spare lectures by your, your, your boss uh, when you're postdoctoral to give you a bit of experience. And, but you're not really ready for lecturing. Um, and you really are thrown at the deep end. And, and you really are. And universities don't train you really that well. There are better courses now. But I remember coming in as an electrophysiologist, and I can remember to this day, and Ronnie O'Regan was the dean of medicine in, in UC at the time. And I went to the medical school, believe it or not, for my first job, not science. And he said to me, right, you've got the lymph node blood and the male and female reproduction lectures to the physiotherapists. Oh, my goodness, I thought to myself, what? <laughs> So I had to step in and give male and female reproduction to the physios, 90% females, obviously. And I think it's better now, the ratio, uh, but it was certainly mostly then. And the med students, I had to give lymph nodes and blood. Never had I done anything that before. So it is a little bit of a, and you tend to be given those lectures when you're the new person anyway, you know. As soon as I got a few years in there, the next new lecture got them, you know. Yeah. Um, But certainly um, I knew immediately that I enjoyed lecturing. I think if you go into a lecture theatre of 200, 300, and you manage it and you don't shake and, and, and you project, I hate if people don't project properly, you must be heard um, is my first thing. I knew I'd enjoy that as well. So as soon as I, you know, first year in the job, um, I knew research and teaching was the right combination for me. And certainly I've enjoyed it since. But even the small groups, large groups, I enjoy it all. But absolutely, um, it's important. And, you know, uh, there have been some some great moments, but it has changed a little. Um, I think this online problem now, I think you'll find most students won't turn up at all, even if there is face-to-face. So, we're, we're waiting to see what happens. But certainly I knew teaching, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did enjoy it. And I think it's not just about delivering the material. It's about being enthusiastic to deliver the material as well. I know. And I suppose kind of that leads me on to the question I do ask a lot of people is, you know, what is your, what is your favourite aspect of academia or the, the best part of your job? And then I suppose, what do you find the most frustrating or the most stressful aspect then? Well, I think 
I would absolutely recommend academia for anybody who's interested. It's a wonderful job. I think the flexibility is one of the most important aspects of academia to the extent that you're given very big flexibility on your research and you really can do go down a side road if you need to and what you want to do. There's, you know, nobody over there with a stick really telling you what research you have to do. And, 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 and that's wonderful. As long as you are good at your ideas and you know what you want to do, wonderful. Um, so I think that's the most important thing in, in a lectureship or in academia is the independence you have in research, I think is good. I mean, obviously, there has to be some, you know, corralling about what you do day to day with teaching and admin. But I think the independence you have is one of the most wonderful things. And I don't know if many lecturers appreciate how much freedom they actually have in this job. I don't think they get a job anywhere else. <laughs> um, they, they have a great freedom and, and, and really they should appreciate that. And I think that's the most wonderful thing. What's the most difficult? Um, I think the rejections are hard. From a PhD student right up to postdoc, to lecturer, to professor, there's always rejections, whether it be paper submissions or grant submissions. The rejections come a lot faster than the acceptance, and I think everybody knows that. Mm. And I think, I don't know how many people get thick-skinned about this. Certainly I haven't. Um, every time you get rejected for a paper, a talk, or say a big grant, it hurts. And sometimes the comments can be a bit mean. Um, so I think some people are getting lots of grants and, and therefore they don't mind. But if you're getting small grants or you're getting grants rarely, then you, I think it's hard to get a thick skin. <laughs> so that's the worst part of this job is the fact that you have to accept rejection quite a lot with the time you spend doing a lot of things. So you spend a lot of time writing a grant. You spend a lot of time writing a paper. And if they're being rejected, you get nothing back for that time you've spent except negative comments. So if you're not able to take that it could upset you in, in academia. So I would say to anyone coming back to TV, be ready for the rejections just as much as for the really important things. I always say to my younger colleagues, when you submit a paper, when you submit a grant, celebrate. Yeah, exactly. Because if more than likely there's a rejection somewhere coming. <laughs> so that's my advice to them. I suppose you have to celebrate the, the big wins as well, you know. I know, absolutely. I mean, when you get that email, we are delighted to tell you that you've got 500,000 for this, that, and the other. That is a time to be very happy with, with what you're doing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I suppose, John, kind of one of my last questions I ask people is, if you weren't a scientist, where do you think your life would have ended up? I mean, I would say a lighthouse keeper, but I don't think it's <laughs> now. So. Not impossible. It, it's a good question. I, you know, it's hard. I, I think I was very close to doing one of two things with my career, going into engineering. So I may have been on top of buildings now, you know, measuring things. But the other thing I nearly went into as well, and I was offered a position before I took the PhD, I was actually offered med lab technology in Kevin Street. I don't know if you know that. I think it's linked to Trinity now. It's basically the medical laboratory workers to do all the uh, work in the hospitals. Okay. Um, and I was offered one of those as well. And I nearly took it because um, I was interested in that as well. So I, it's hard to know. I, I did have a few choices outside. I probably would be in a lab. I probably would be working in science, all right. But academia has proved to be really good to me. And I certainly wouldn't look back. But 
it's not an easy career to end up where I am. I have to say that it's very few will end up at the top end in academia. So I suppose in a way you have to have a plan B if it doesn't work out. My plan B was probably to go into the pharmaceutical industry after postdocs if I didn't get a lectureship. Mm. But again, they all got absolutely hammered back in the 90s as well. The neuroscience in pharmaceutics, they all got closed down. You probably heard GSK, um, Solvay, they all closed down the neuroscience wings back in the 90s. So there was a tough time then as well. Um, so neuroscience has been hit hard on and off. And the reason being, many, many times these companies are not making headway in the drugs that they want to treat, like Alzheimer drugs have failed many, many times. So I suppose they don't see the profit a lot of the time in working in neuroscience because it's so difficult. Mm -hmm. So that's all the more reason why we should be working harder in it. So where would I be? Goodness knows. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I just know I love where I am now and, yeah. and I certainly wouldn't go backwards, you know. Well, that's actually a lovely note to end um, our, our chat. And yeah, thank you so much. It's been great. I've, I've learned loads. And uh, yeah, the lighthouse thing was definitely, <laughs> I was not expecting that. <laughs> no, delighted. In memory of my father, he died a couple of years ago and, uh, you know, he, he was a fantastic lighthouse keeper. So dedicated to him. So that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.